Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sensat. Welcome, Jackson. How's it going today, Chris? Not too bad, man. Not too bad. Um, so I got a question. What does the Notre Dame, Volterra, Italy, and Sir John Soane's Bank of England have in common? Any idea? Uh, I would say maybe uh, Paul Aubin. You would be right. Paul Aubin is exactly right. So our guest for today um, was uh, Paul Aubin. He's well known in the industry. He uh, He's an owner of his own Paul F. Aubin Consulting Services. He's uh, on LinkedIn Learning. He's an author. He's, he's all over the place. Well established. And he joined me to talk about um, really using modern technologies to preserve history. And... Uh, and those three things that we kind of named, Notre Dame, Volterra, Italy, and Sir, uh, Sir John Soane, Bank of England, were all uh, historical artifacts, buildings, places or sites that they were using 3D scanning technology, they were using point clouds, they were using Revit models to start to preserve and uncover history. Um, what did you think of the talk? I thought it was extremely interesting. Um, Paul is definitely a very sharp individual. And um, it seems like he's been doing this Revit thing for a long time. And the mm -hmm. fact that he gets to be involved in, you know, buildings that transcend time um, and digitize them the way he does is something that I think, um, you know, people in architecture school dream about doing. Oh, yeah. And I didn't even realize, I mean, I think on all three of those, he had some level of impact, whether it was on one, he was modeling some buttresses on another. I think he was doing something with the columns. Uh, and then I think Volterra, Italy, he was heavily involved um, in what they're doing over there. And, and really, you know, to listen to him talk about how they, uh, you know, they're uncovering this these buried buried ruins as they try to to model this information as they try to scan this information it was uh it was a really cool cool thing to to listen to yeah it was really nice to hear him talk about you know the context of when those buildings were designed and the way that they um you know the way that they um you know designed like certain staircases and things like that. It almost sounded like there were a lot of secret passageways, which was pretty cool. Um, oh, yeah. But whenever um, you get to do a deep dive in buildings like that and kind of, it, it's kind of like going back in time and while you're still in the present to, you know, getting to like sit in those buildings. And, you know, something that was really cool um, was that like, he basically said that he gets to, um, you know, he, he gets to basically be in the mind of the designer who designed Notre Dame um, and the building in Volterra, Italy. It, you know, it was cool when he even talked about, he equated it to, I think, walking. And, um, you know, if you're walking down the road, you probably observe or remember things differently than if you drive past it. And he talked about not only are we preserving history, but I think some of these individuals are having a new appreciation for history because, uh, you know, he, he referred to one thing, I can't remember on what building, but when you look at it to your eye, it just looks maybe like a rectangle, but then not only to, or even a chamfered edge, but not only until you start to model it, do you actually realize the intric 
the intricacies of how that's put together, that maybe there isn't, you know, an extra face, that they come to a point, all these things that maybe our mind tricks us when we're not actually looking at it at a much detail level. And so I think listening to him is every time they did one of these, they learned something new or they uncovered something different, which, you know, I looked at it as, or I, you know, I pitched the talk as, we're preserving history. We're doing these 3D scans. Maybe we can, you know, like Notre Dame burned down, we can rebuild it. And then he comes from a, at a different angle of how we appreciate the historical buildings that much more. And, and another cool thing about the historical buildings is they actually push things like Revit forward because of the complexity of their design. Nobody's really designing buildings like that anymore. And the fact that he's recreating those in Revit um it to me it's pushing the software further absolutely yeah so it was, it was really cool to talk to him um you know i posed the question of do we have the ethical duty to to rebuild these elsewhere if they're gonna be washed away from we talked on climate change um i thought that was an interesting part of the conversation overall it was a lot of fun uh, anything else that kind of stood out for you before we listened to it um, nothing other than his, uh, website, um, and all of the books that he's written. Uh, he's quite the author. <laughs> yeah, he's impressive. Go check him out. He, he talks a little bit about his new book in the podcast. So you want to listen to that and go find it. Uh, hope you enjoy and check back for more. My name is Paul Aubin, and I started in the architectural industry uh, as a practitioner uh, many years ago, but um, have been on the technology side of things for yeah, 15, 20 years, been a while now, um, doing uh, training, uh, consulting, writing books, doing videos, just trying to help people be successful with their software. It's kind of my little motto is uh, help people be successful with the software they've already paid for. It's a pretty good one, actually. Yeah. Because they probably bad. see only, what, like 15, 20% of the software they get. I know. It's, uh, it's true. You know, and, and I'm not trying to push a whole bunch of, oh, well, we got to build all these new custom plugins and everything. I feel like, you know, there's enough in what you've already got that uh, we should be able to, to make things work for you. So that's what I always try and do. Not against like that. building custom stuff. I mean, if it's appropriate, but uh, I don't start there. Yeah. No, I like that because it actually reminds me, there was a quote and I'm going to screw it up, but it was like the difference between being efficient and being effective. And it was kind of the idea that, you know, before we can worry about efficiency, we need to be effective in what we do. And so the example is if you have all this software and you're not effectively using it, you're not using it to the full, you shouldn't even worry about the efficiency part. You right. Know? You got to know how to use what you have. Otherwise you're just yeah. finding a solution. Yeah. Um, I kind of feel that way about my, uh, Microsoft uh, 365 subscription. There's so much in there that I barely have touched that uh, like I keep saying, you know, I really need to spend some more time. I'm probably paying extra money for redundant software that I already have that I've already paid for, you know? Oh yeah. It's kind of overwhelming. Like I recently started messing with uh, power automate just for fun yeah. and the stuff you can do with that is pretty amazing. Now, I mean, I did find out how to create a thousand planner tasks by mistake <laughs> so it could go out of control quickly okay. 
See, like, what I was trying to figure out how to do was how to take my to-do tasks and move them into Planner. But now it turns out that I guess they were working on that behind the scenes. So I'm just going to wait for them to figure that out because uh, apparently both are going to show up in Teams pretty soon. So Yeah, actually, uh, I have seen if, if you're assigned something in Planner, it does show up in Microsoft To-Do, but I don't know if it's the other way around. Yeah. Um, not at all what was we were going to talk about, but I think uh, that's but, great. You know, <laughs> I think it's, it's related. All, yeah, in a way, I think so. Um, so the main the main thing I wanted to discuss, and it was something that, you know, talking with Matt, heard a little bit about your background and your interests, was this idea of using these modern technologies and, you know, maybe it's specifically laser scanning or whatever it may be to preserve history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of the background at the beginning I thought of when he kind of mentioned that, I immediately went to... Um, the cathedral at Notre Dame, you know, it burned. And then all of a sudden we hear, we have all of these 3D scans and all of this information so that we can now rebuild or repurpose. Um, And so, you know, what I would like to do is, he mentioned specifically something you were involved in, Project Zone or, you know, something like that. And I don't know what it was called. And so I'd love to, you know, kick it off a little bit, uh, talking about Project Zone and even just, you know, to some degree, what are some of the things you're already seeing outside of what we saw with the Cathedral of Notre Dame, just from a, you know, preservation aspect? And then we could tie into, you know, some of the other things that go on with it. Yeah. So actually, I, um, I have a little bit of connection to all of those things you mentioned. Um, so the, the common link between Project Zone and Notre Dame is a gentleman by the name of Andy Milburn, who you might want to consider getting as one of your guests in the future um oh, yeah. this, this guy is absolutely fascinating he's a good friend of mine um so project zone was uh i wasn't involved in creating project zone but i was tapped to to be a participant um it was sponsored by uh, hp nvidia autodesk uh several others uh, robert a.m stern's uh firm was uh, heavily involved i think they actually kind of wrote the scope of what Project Zone was going to be. Um, and uh, there was a few other firms that were involved in my apologies to any of them that I'm forgetting. But um, they, uh, they wanted to do something that really hadn't been done yet at that point was crowdsource uh, the recreation of a lost historical building. So uh, uh, John Zone was an architect in uh, London uh, back around the turn of uh, of the century from 18, you know, 1790s to 1800 in that time frame, And uh, he was the bank, uh, the, the architect for the Bank of England mm-hmm. for about 40 years uh, in okay. that time frame. So late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, and he did some of his most prolific work uh, on the bank during that period of time, most of which is now lost. Um, so over subsequent generations, they demolished a lot of his stuff, some of it early in the 20th century, sadly. Um, so there is still some of the exterior shell of the building that can be uh, attributed to John Sohn, but most of the interior of the building has been completely gutted, remodeled, and changed, and most of his uh, were, you know, contributions there were lost. Um, he did keep a very extensive uh, history of what he had done, and all of his drawings have been preserved in the John Sohn Museum, which is actually in what used to be his house in London. Oh, okay. And uh, so that group was also involved in Project Zone and they made the drawings available, scanned versions of the drawings available. And so the idea was, um, let's take these drawings, these hand drawings that we have from Zone and recreate using Revit and other tools, um, 
you know, portions of the Bank of England that have been lost. And then that was phase one of the competition. And then phase two was a, a rendering competition. So once we had some models, then they were going to make those models available to anybody who wanted to render them using any tool they wanted. Um, and they had a rendering competition. So um, I, uh, I did a small little contribution to the model. Uh, but my friend, Andy Milburn, who I mentioned, uh, he just took off with this project and became the de facto leader mm-hmm. um, and has probably is probably responsible for building about 80% of the, or more of the work that's there. And it went way beyond the two or three spaces that the original project was uh, intended. He built the whole bank, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, which, which uh, covers like at least a full, if not two city blocks in London. I mean, it's a huge facility um, and it just sort of grew organically over time, you know, um, uh, over the years uh, that the bank uh, grew. And so, but he, and uh, Andy also has a wonderful blog where he kind of detailed out um, what, what he'd been doing and the other people who participated. But uh, the project is a huge success in the sense that there were um, at least a dozen core people that were actively involved throughout the life of the competition. And then several other people that kind of jumped in and jumped out at different points in time. Um, and th- they had, the competition, there was awards given at Autodesk University and uh, from HP and NVIDIA. And so it was, it was a very successful uh, project and it proved this kind of concept that you could have this um, group of people that were interested in preserving history get together and, and recreate something that had been previously lost. So then the fire happened at Notre Dame and um, Andy over a weekend decided that he was going to just go up online and find as many photos and Google Earth things that he could find and try and build a model of Notre Dame. And mm-hmm. um, that started a, basically another project zone. Uh, it's not sponsored. Um, yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that. Autodesk has provided the BIM 360 site for, okay. uh, for Not- Project Notre Dame. So um, the, the folks that are participating are all working in a BIM 360 site, and that is provided by Autodesk. But um, otherwise, there's no official corporate sponsors. It is literally Andy and a dozen or so people around the world who are interested building this incredibly robust model of Notre Dame from whatever materials they can get their hands on. And sadly, we don't have the point cloud. So uh, Andrew Tallon and um, some other folks had scanned Notre Dame, but these, these point clouds are being held um, by their entities that own them in very, um, you know, very close to the best. So what they did provide was uh, like a true view is up online and yeah. you can, um, anybody can go to that and you can take measurements. So we're able to go in there and compare other source materials that we do have and take measurements and then kind of back check that to what we have. So um, I think the model as it stands is pretty close. I mean, it's probably a couple centimeter accuracy. Um, That's impressive. It is pretty impressive given the materials that we've had. Uh, One of the participants uh, painstakingly translated uh, a book from Fondé de Luc, I'm not saying that right, um, but uh, he was the one who renovated Notre Dame during the time when uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame was written. Yeah. Because you know? Notre Dame was in ruin at that time, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, that book single-handedly resurged interest in Notre Dame. And they did a whole bunch of renovations in the 1800s uh, to restore it um, and uh, preserve it. And uh, that book 
has amazing drawings in it and detailed. It's all in French. So he was painstakingly copying out pieces and putting them in Google Translate and creating, because uh, most of our participants are English speakers. Um, you know, so my one small contribution to Project Zone was the columns on the um, Tivoli Corner. And my one small tr contribution to Project Notre Dame was the buttresses, the flying buttresses. I built huh. those in the model. So, um, uh, but I've just, I sadly have not been uh, able to continue. Uh, I mean, these guys, whenever I log into Slack, I mean, there's like a hundred messages that I haven't seen. These guys are super active in there uh, working on this stuff. So there's a lot of interest in these kinds of projects. And then uh, the third project that I'm involved in, where I am much more actively involved because I'm a member of the board is um, the Voltaire Detroit Foundation. And okay. um the Voltaire Detroit Foundation is uh, an entity that has, uh, that maintains and owns a facility in um, Volterra, Italy. And Volterra, Italy is one of those lovely little um, Tuscan hill towns that you see in postcards um, with the medieval wall and yep. you know, just everything. Uh, it's in the, um, the University of Detroit Mercy has been sending students there for about 30 years mm -hmm. um, to uh, study architecture and other uh, things, but their architecture department has been sending students there for years. And um, about 10, 15 years ago, they, the city presented uh, the university with the opportunity to acquire a building there. Um, and the university turned it down. So a bunch of alumni uh, that didn't want to let the opportunity pass decided to start the foundation. And so the foundation actually took, uh, took up the offer. And so now when the students go study in Volterra, they have a, a space. So we actually okay. have a residential college in uh, Volterra in the city walls um, that can house, I don't know, maybe about 20, 25 students at a time, uh, plus professors and so forth. Um, and that's part of the year. But then throughout the rest of the year, we do other programs there. And the program that I got involved in was the Reality Capture Workshop, which was started about five years ago um, by one of the alums and one of the board members, Mark Dietrich. And um, I... I happened upon that um, a friend of mine Robert Mana actually heard about it and tweeted out Paul this looks like something you'd be interested in and literally that's how I heard about it and wow. uh, uh, power so of decided, social media <laughs> yeah I know it's wonderful right and so I decided to attend and it's this fantastic uh, opportunity where you spend two weeks in Volterra with a bunch of laser scanning equipment and other reality capture equipment and we just have the the run of the town and mm -hmm. we just go around and we're scanning anything and everything that we can get our hands on. Um, so we've scanned the, um, you know, ancient ruins of the Roman theater and uh, Etruscan ruins of the Acropolis and just, um, you know, medieval structures. And uh, you know, they've got layers of history there. They've got everything from pre Etruscan, which uh, is referred to as the Villanovan uh, society, then Etruscan, then Roman, then post-Roman, medieval. I mean, and it's all just sort of layered on top of each other in this big jumble. And so we've, we've got uh, four, over four terabytes of scan data now uh, in Volterra because we've done this workshop every year since, except for this past year for obvious yep. reasons. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we're actively processing the data and trying to, to build um, resources with that, that either academics or scholars are. So, so I've been kind of tackling this idea of reality capture and, and preserving heritage stuff from a lot of different ways. And then, of course, the final way that I've done that is Renaissance Revit, you know, which is one of yep. my books that, uh, that talks about building um, complex forms in the Revit family editor. But I chose classical columns because why not? 
you know? Oh yeah. And those are the hardest when you see some of those with all the little like flared out pieces. And mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting because you're talking about like the different layers of history. I, uh, when I was doing some research on this topic ahead of time, I came across a quote that was saying that, you know, the idea of reality capture for these historic places, one is great for visualization, but it's also cool to tell the story of the site. And yeah. so by capturing all this data, we can actually, in a way, kind of look back in time and see, you know, the story that occurred along that, that village or that area. And, and that's true, but I'll tell you the biggest discovery that I've had from that. Um, and, you know, and Andy would agree with this too. Uh, uh, one of the reasons that Andy started Project Notre Dame uh, is he uses, he likes to talk about BIM as his BIM pencil. Okay. Um, and what he means by that is, you, you went to architecture school. I went yep. to architecture school. I mean, what did, what did we always have to do? You go out with a sketchbook somewhere and you draw stuff. And, yep. and by drawing stuff, you see it in a way that you don't see if you just take a photograph or if you just look at it quickly because you're forced to, um, to see the details and you're forced to understand how they fit together. See where and, the shadow is. Yeah. And, and uh, just spending time with it, you, things, you, you see things that you didn't previously see, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my wife and I would go out uh, walking a couple times a week and it's amazing to me in my own neighborhood that I've lived in for 20 years, how sometimes I'll see some, something on somebody's house that I never noticed before, you know? Yep. And it's, it's, so it's the same kind of thing. It's like the more you look at something, the more details you kind of pull out and that you see. So modeling is the same way. Um, if you're building something physically, you know, three-dimensionally, um, it forces you to see it and to try and understand it in ways that you wouldn't even by drawing it. So in a way, it's almost like, I don't want to say it's better than sketching, but it's complementary mm-hmm. and it's similar to the, what we learned with sketching. It's, it's the way that you truly see and understand the built form. And um, I found that's true with reality capture too, because you get this point cloud and in a way, I don't want to offend anybody, but it's almost the lazy approach because the laser is going to capture everything, right? So we got it all. We captured all the data. But if you don't do anything with the data, then it's almost like, so what? Right. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in all the months subsequent to the workshops where we've been processing the data, that's when you really make the discoveries. And then yep. you're you yearn to go back because you're like, oh, I want to see that with my own eyes now. I miss that that little detail. Um, you know, little things like from the ground, you look up at the tower on the Palazzo de Priori in the main square in uh, Volterra, and it looks like a square with one truncated corner. So imagine a square with one 45 degree angle. Cut out. Edge. Yeah. And, and your mind does that. Your mind says it's just a 45 chamfer edge on that corner. But when you really start building it, you realize it's not actually 45. Um, two of the sides are bent in towards one another. And there's really only one 90 degree corner on that, on that tower. And um, it's a, just this little thing that you just wouldn't notice unless you were actively trying, you know, again, the process of sketching and seeing and really pulling out that little detail. So, and there's thousands of those discoveries that you make when you're building these models from, you know, from these reality capture tools. So, so yeah, the reality capture is really cool and is way better than crawling around with a tape measure and a yellow notepad like we used to do in the day. But it's what you do with the data later that really makes the difference. And then all those little decisions you make because, you know, it's capturing every little point, which mm-hmm. almost is almost too much data now because it's like we don't want to build a wall that's every last little wave. Like, you know, uh, you want to convey something about that. Yep. Right. Um, 
and, and it's a real interesting challenge because we're constantly discussing that now. Like you, you, there's lots of tools out there with automated algorithms and they have to make those same decisions that you and I have to make if we're going to do it manually. Like at what point do we smooth this out? At what point do we assume that it's this more regular shape? Um, is it important to have all that little detail? You know, and the answer of course is it depends. Yep. What are you planning to do there? You know, is that the design intent or what's the yeah. use? Cause I know it's interesting about the idea of like seeing more as you continue to look at, or you see different. Cause I don't know if you've seen, um, there's a group called, I think it's called build change and it's a nonprofit and they basically scanned a city, I believe somewhere in India. Uh, it was a city that had been kind of, uh, Oh yeah. I think I, think I know about this. It's like yeah. natural disaster had kind of destroyed the area. And so in a similar way to project zone, it was like open, um, open source kind of concept where they scan the city and then there are different people pro bono that are building models and you can navigate through. Well, anytime I tell someone about it, I always like, Oh yeah, that was cool. I go back and look and I, without fail, without every time I go back, there's something else that I didn't see the first time. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh, I didn't realize that they captured that corner of the building or I didn't realize that this building was actually burned down and here's a Revit model now. Um, so, I mean, it's pretty amazing what they are able to do with it. Uh, you know, if you do get Andy on the show, ask him about the sentry boxes on Project Zone um, okay. because he made this really wonderful little discovery. He, he read all these books and all these articles and he, he didn't find anything written about this, but just by building the model, he discovered, I mean, it's a bank, right? They had gold mm-hmm. reserves there, right? I mean, this is 200 years ago. So it wasn't like where money was all digital. You know, they didn't have digital. I mean, they literally had vaults full of gold in the bank. So they had guards up on the roof you know, all the time guarding the bank. And uh, he found, he discovered these little, these little alcoves. And he's like, the only thing these can be is places for the guards to get out of the weather. I mean, it's London, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, to, to get out of the weather, uh, you know, when they're up there guarding things. And it was like, how cool is that to make those little discoveries, right? Or he's got another similar one that he uh, shared about this really crazy little staircase in Notre Dame that, um, that, you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a minor detail, but when you discover how it kind of fits in and the way that they solved the problem, it's always, uh, it's always really fascinating, you know, to, to come across those discoveries. And I just wish I had more time to do more of that because the, that's the fun stuff of, of building these things, you know, like uh, making all those little discoveries along the way. The, uh, yeah, it is. And it really does go back to kind of what you said, like when you walk, versus drive, you know, how much more do you see when you walk? Right. And so I could see how that really applies to the model. Um, but I, I want to change pace a little bit before we talk more about this concept. I did want to talk to you a little bit about your book. So yeah. you, uh, I know you were coming out with, or you already published a new book, you know, what's the details around that? You know, what was the yeah, mo- so, motivation? Uh, I, and- I took the opportunity. So when we all went into quarantine, I said, well, I, I have two choices here. I can I can hole up for however many months and have nothing to show for it at the end, or I can use it as an opportunity to take a slow time and turn it into an opportunity. And that's what I decided to do because it's been very difficult to, to keep books up to date. And so when I started the project, I realized it had been five years since I updated my book on Revit architecture, um, which is a long time. And then um, it's even longer than that for Renaissance Revit. So I actually have the two books. Renaissance Revit is a little easier to justify letting it go because the family editor hasn't changed as much as maybe the base product. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are more people that are interested in just learning uh, overall Revit than focusing on 
complex geometry in Revit. So it was a tough decision for me because Renaissance Revit's more fun. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the one I wanted to update, but I decided it was really more appropriate to update the, uh, uh, the, the general, the book on generally using Revit for architecture. So I uh, gave it a new title. It's Revit Essentials for Architecture. Mm-hmm. And um, that's sort of a tie into what my, my main course on LinkedIn learning is as well. So, you know, the idea that I, it's not the same content, yeah, the, like the same lessons, but it's the same overall material. So uh, I've always kind of looked at it as um, people learn differently. Some people like to read a book. Some people like to go to a live training. Some people like to watch a video and pause and rewind. So I provide all of those things. Um, so, uh, but I try not to use exactly the same lessons each time because if somebody likes a multi-tiered approach, they're going to get bored if they're doing the same building or the same lesson each time. So in each of those, um, in each of those media, I, I use uh, different examples, different lessons, different picks and clicks, if you will, mm-hmm. but you're still covering, you know, okay, here's how to do walls. Here's how to do roofs. Here's how to build a building. Here's how to structure it. Here's how to think about using links and work sets and these other things. Right. So, uh, so it covers all the essentials. Um, it just came out last week. Um, so uh, it's, it's available now in both uh, print form and uh, Kindle uh, okay. ebook. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for asking about it because uh, it, uh, it's always more work than you remember. since the last time that you did it and uh of course i wasn't satisfied in just doing uh the normal thing i decided oh well why don't i also put it in indesign this time so that it'll look nicer and you know so i literally had to learn indesign (laughs) (laughs) so which is a lot harder than it sounds um but I shouldn't be surprised by that because InDesign is as robust a program as Revit is and you know for me to think that I'm just gonna as a non- graphic designer i'm just going to get up in and yeah just i'll just pick it up right that's like somebody who's not an architect saying oh how hard could revit be i'll just pick it up you know so i actually did um pay a consultant to help me um who is a graphic designer and uh he was immensely valuable his uh as a resource to uh to help me get through that part of it. But, you know, I can't just leave well enough in Olin. I always got to add some challenge that uh, wasn't required just to keep it interesting. Just so. to make it fun. Yeah. No, I appreciate, I appreciate the comment about the, uh, the different software. Cause I, I definitely find myself hopping on something like, Oh, I could do this. Yeah. And then not realizing that there's a level of expertise for the profession that gets applied to that software. Exactly. And it's like, yeah, I might be able to find the line tool. Yeah. I don't know how the heck to do something, you know, with a graphical design mindset. So I mean, that's actually a really important point because we all make an assumption. So like with my learning materials, I, I ha- you have to start somewhere. And mm-hmm. I make the assumption that everybody who's reading or watching or coming to my training has an architectural background. Otherwise, I'd have to teach them architecture. And that's not what I'm, what I'm trying to do. I'm trying yep. to teach them how to use a tool for architecture. You know, yep. so there's certain language and there's certain strategies and certain approaches that you just assume people understand. And, uh, you know, it's difficult if, uh, if somebody stumbles in that doesn't have that expertise, you you know, you don't want to say, Oh, well, you can't do this. It's, it's too advanced for you. I mean, sure. Let them try. But um, at the same time, you can understand, well, they'll be a little bit frustrated because you didn't explicitly explain, you know, uh, what it takes to make a floor plan and why we cut it at four feet and, you know, uh, when we would even bother showing one in the first place, you know, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. 
Oh, the struggles of trading. Um, yeah. No, so that, so I assume Amazon, you know, the the regular places where we can find it. Absolutely, uh, and I do have a page on my website, paulovin.com. Okay. So, um, and there's links there. But yeah, it's absolutely it's on Amazon, and uh, I assume the other retail outlets. I haven't checked them all, but uh... the AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software, with solutions for the modern project. Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Hey, it was just a topic you're passionate about, I guess. <laughs> That's true. Whenever you find something you're passionate about, you can talk forever. So switch gears one more time as we kind of approach. You know, I, I don't want to hit the Auburn hour. <laughs> I want to hit that. Um, yeah. No, yeah, okay. Bill will be I, mad at me. I, uh, I'm curious. And um, based on other things that we've talked about now, I, I think this question is interesting. Um, so I was doing again, doing some research and, you know, the, the idea behind scanning all these historic buildings, part of that is all around the idea of, so my, uh, they must be listening because every once in a while my phone will like, I need you to accept securities. And I'm like, no, I don't want to accept securities. <laughs> yeah. Mine does the same thing. Like she just perks up. I didn't hear what you said. Well, I wasn't talking to you. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no. It's like, um, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so what I was trying to get at was, so one of the reasons that we've, I've seen or we've heard that a lot of this uh, technology is being used for this purpose is based around environmental factors. Mm. You know, a lot of the historical architecture has been degrading, whether just naturally or, you know, for other reasons. And something I came across that was kind of interesting that I'm curious about uh, to get your thoughts was there was this statement made in this article. So it says, okay, you know, because of climate change, because of environmental factors, this technology is necessary. Well, a lot of these historic buildings are in areas, you know, on the coast or surrounded mm -hmm. by water, where those areas are in danger of, you know, getting washed away just because yeah. of climate change. So what this article was proposing is, so we kind of have this dilemma now. We have the ability, say we have the ability to recreate from scratch Notre Dame and say it was actually in an area where it was gonna get washed away. Do we move it somewhere else and rebuild it? Interesting, yeah. Do we, and if we do that, it's no longer the historical site. What have we done to the site? Do we just leave it and honor the historical site and let it kinda, you know, it's like this weird dilemma that I never would have thought about until I read this article. I'm curious, you know, what do you think? What do you, what do you think we should do if, if yeah. there's this well, historic building that's going to just get washed away? Do we move it? Yeah. I mean, well, that's not unprecedented, right? I mean, uh, you've heard of stories of, you know, they moved this castle from Scotland and brick by brick and reassembled it, you know, somewhere else. Uh, so, <clears throat> I mean, it's, uh, and that's, uh, those kind of stories predate uh, reality capture. I think if they had reality capture, they would have been able to uh, facilitate that kind of a project a little bit easier. But I, I, I almost feel like, um, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, because you're going to get, uh, no matter what, you're always going to have people that feel like it's the right thing to do to preserve, 
you know, the, uh, the site, but on the other hand, you'll have other people that say, no, the site is critically important to what it is. And if the site is no longer there, then who cares about the building or, you know, and everything in between, right? Um, yeah, if you move like the Flatiron building somewhere to a flat site in Iowa. Yeah. Why is it, a, why is it shaped like that? It doesn't need to be shaped like that anymore. Exactly. Like what's special about this? Why is this weird thing here? You know? Um, so it's, um, you know, our history is, uh, it's this weird mal malleable thing, right? Um, because uh, you're dealing with people's memories, like even your own memory. Um, you know, you think about things that happened earlier in your life and, um, and, uh, and experiences you had, and you, you've heard studies before about how your, your brain remembers it differently as yep. you move on, uh, you know, and then we're talking about historical uh, sites, you know, well, people record them differently. And well, you say, well, the artifact is there. It, it's, it's still there, but it's changed over time. People have, uh, you know, uh, and that's one of the things that uh, like in project Notre Dame and in project zone that uh, some of the discoveries that have been made, like you see how windows have changed or some of the things and you, you start to infer why that might've been, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, was it that they decided that, a certain kind of window didn't work in that situation or um, somebody didn't like it and they decided we want to bring more light in or less light in or whatever the thing was. So it's like, even that was kind of a living breathing sort of thing. So, you know, should our buildings stay static at one point in time or should they be evolving to the needs of the society? And I, I think it's, uh, you could make a case for, you know, for either one, but I tend to think they sh the building should be serving us. Right. Mm -hmm. So I agree if our collective memory says it's more important for us to preserve the memory of what this site once was. And if we hadn't saved it and moved it, it would get washed away and it would no longer be there. I mean, in that situation to me, I'd say, Hey, if we've got the means and the will to do it, let's move it. But, you know, obviously we want to, um, to communicate properly that part of the history, you know, it used to be here, but we moved it here and it, this is why, um, that has to be an integral part of that uh, ongoing history of that site now. But should we be doing that for every heritage and historical site? You know, probably not. I mean, obviously, uh, we don't want to start moving everything into a museum. It's, uh, you know, um, but... Because there's uh, huge, like, financial constraints. And, you know, you mentioned, like, the with Notre Dame, somebody scanned it, and they hold that tight to them. Like, who technically owns that? I mean, is it the, the individual that scanned it owns it? Is it the subject... Like yeah, and I don't want to be unfair it. there. I don't want to kind of mischaracterize, but um, the Andrew Talon, the professor, he's uh, deceased, uh, sadly, but um, he, uh, his university, uh, or I'm not sure actually whether it's his university that owns it or whether it's his family that owns it. Um, so I don't even know for sure whether the person who does the scanning or whoever sponsored them, you know, it's, I'm sure there's all these legal things, but because there's the whole restoration effort going on, in Paris, I think that has something to do with it as well. So mm -hmm. um, if they just made the point cloud available publicly to anybody, maybe there's some concern there. Um, so I don't, I don't know the exact details. I know that some members of our team have tried to, to get access to the point cloud and have not had success. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of legal and ownership issues that, that come into that, but it, it is an interesting point. Like, you know, um, who owns Notre Dame, right? Technically it's owned by the Catholic church and the French government, or there's some sort of arrangement uh, that they have, but um, it's really, you could argue owned by 
the world, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's one of these sites that, uh, that we all, you know, could claim ownership to. And you could almost say that about any heritage site, but um, it's physically in a place and that place is physically governed by a body and there's, you know, maybe a private entity involved. And so just like all of our constructs in human society, it's, uh, it's this weird, complicated mess of competing interests, you know? Uh, and I so. can see that actually being something that like, well, this is going to be negative that maybe prevents us from doing more of this on a larger scale because there possibly. will possibly be not outside of the financial is, you know, like you said, who owns it? Is it the, the city it's in? Is it the country, the state? Is it the, the, the person that has the building, you know, is it the person yeah. that did the scan? It's like in my house, if I hired someone to model my house, I'd argue that it's my house. I had commissioned them. It's my model. Yeah. They might say, well, I mean, it's my model. You, you know, we, we hear those debates already with regular projects. So yeah. Even, even when you, uh, I, well, uh, we're about to celebrate our 25th uh, wedding anniversary. So I can't say whether it's changed in 25 years, but back 25 years ago, the photographer owned your negatives. Um, and so you had to buy your photos from them. And yep. so even though they were pictures of your wedding and your, you know, your family, uh, you still had to buy those photos from them. And so it's a similar argument to what you just made. If you commission somebody to model your house, then who technically owns the model? Like you hire an architect to create uh, drawings for you and designs for you. Technically they own that, intellectual property right yep. but they're providing you a service so yeah it's a i mean it's as much a question for our legal experts as it is for anything else right um but uh one of the things we're trying to do in uh in volterra is uh and it's an ongoing project it's going to take a while we're, we're not even close to being having something that we can release publicly but we're trying to create sort of a virtual experience mm -hmm. so that um with these heritage sites uh one of the advantages you have with creating them, uh, digitally capturing them, is you theoretically can bring people there virtually. And yep. especially with the world today where we're doing everything virtually right now. Oh, um, yeah. I've been to some museums lately just by logging yeah. on the internet. Logging on and they have objects you can pick up and hold in your hand and spin them around, you know, put on your head, uh, your goggles and, and kind of experience it in a virtual way. Um, so there's a real opportunity to do that with some of these heritage sites. So even if there isn't the, um, the, the, the uh, money or the interest or the um, capability to pick up a site and move it to someplace safer in these coastal areas, at the very least, we can capture it digitally and preserve it in that way. It's not yep. the same as being able to go into the space and experience it, of course, but um, you know, given the choice of letting it go to oblivion or having at least that, I would think that most people would agree that having, uh, having, having the digital recreation better. is better than nothing, you know? Oh, yeah. So, no, I didn't think about it that way because, yeah, I mean, I have hopped on and did some virtual tours of museum just because I could because right. of COVID. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I would have probably never gone there. Like, I'll never, well, probably never in my life would go to Notre Dame. But if I could see it, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you did go right now, I don't think you could go in. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's going to be I'm, I'm afraid to there. fly right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like, I... <laughs> can't even go to Iowa right now, let alone, uh, <laughs> you know, Paris, right? I uh, know. Yeah. It's so, I mean, the, the question you raised, I don't have a, I don't have a hard answer. I guess, uh, I, I like understanding history. I like understanding historical structures. I like studying them. I like making them available to as many people as possible. So, um, it feels a little weird to pick them up and move them, but 
you know, you'd have to take it on a case by case basis. If we're going to lose it and there's will and interest in moving it, then I would say let's do it. You know, I think so. And you, and like I said, you could also argue that maybe it was meant to, to degrade the way it is. That's the historical aspect of it. And, you know, so I thought it was an interesting thing. And based on some other conversations, I'd be curious to get your, get your opinion. Um, you know, I really do appreciate chatting with you. The, uh, the, this idea of using all these modern technologies. I mean, we could talk for hours about all the data collects and the amount of data and all that kind of stuff. But um, on the surface, being able to, in a way, preserve a lot of the historical sites, um, hearing about your experiences with those has been very enjoyable. So yeah, thank you. I I enjoyed it too. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the day when we'll be able to go back over to Volterra and continue our work, you know? <laughs> yeah. So are those kind of, the, you know, what are next steps then for, for that? I mean, is it permanently on hold right now because of COVID or just. Yeah. Ish? There's no travel there right now. I mean, we usually go in April, so I don't know. April is fast approaching, believe it or not. So yeah. I, I'm a little dubious that we're even going to be able to do this year's workshop. Um, uh, we had to cancel last year's obviously, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, also because of, I mean, the reason April is because that was the between college semesters when other students weren't there. You know, we can't have a bunch of uh, uh, adults and professionals in the school at the same time as a bunch of students for obvious reasons. Um, But uh, uh, so we have to always pick a time when the school is available. And um, usually it ends up being around April. And uh, so I don't know. But if if schools don't come back, I mean, and suddenly we've got a big chunk of time that's open in the school, you know, maybe, maybe we'll go at a different time next year. You know, we are just playing it by ear at this point, but um, uh, yeah, we do hope to get back. They're doing an amazing new excavation there right now. So they're still discovering uh, there's a Roman amphitheater that was discovered just outside the walls. And uh, it's absolutely astonishing looking at the, uh, well, we've already scanned it twice. Uh, We scanned the site before they started digging we scanned uh, last year the first phase of the excavation and this year's excavation. I mean, this, the new stuff they're uncovering, it's just amazing. I mean, last year there was just one little curved wall that started. So you could really use your imagination and say, Oh, I can kind of see that. Um, now uh, across the other side, they've excavated and you can really start to see the ellipse coming into to form oh, wow. because you know of what they've been uncovering it's just amazing and it was just sitting there under the uh, under the ground all these years you know <laughs> you wonder what else needs to be discovered it's pretty it is pretty amazing yeah. and knowing like the technology they had or lack of technology they had and, yeah. and it's probably a perfect ellipse too I mean. yeah it's really <laughs> astonishing some of the walls like we when we scanned it, we were amazed at just how smooth the, the masonry was. It's just uh, really fascinating. Yeah, we talk about how our, our superior technology, well, I, you know, we just don't know what was lost, technologically speaking. Sure, they didn't have computers and digital stuff, but they, they had plenty of comparable technologies that uh, were pretty amazing, you know, so. Very cool. Yeah. Well, man, I appreciate you joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, too. I'm glad Matt uh, made the connection for us. So, uh, yeah, yeah. let's do it again sometime. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. 
The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2020.